I'm Anastasia Glover, your host for Friday's episode of Cato Daily Podcast. Yesterday evening, President Bush gave a speech outlining his plan to deploy an additional 20,000 troops to Iraq in a bid to at last declare victory. Our guest today is Cato adjunct scholar Patrick Basham, who has some commentary on the president's plan. Patrick, do you perceive the president's speech as a commitment to success in Iraq that the White House would like us to believe that it is, or rather its inability to admit failure? I think President Bush's speech very much reflects an inability to admit failure on his part. The president finds himself in a terrible bind, both militarily and politically. Obviously, the situation on the ground in Iraq has gone from bad to worse. It's escalating, arguably out of control. I would argue that Iraq is in a state of civil war. The president very belatedly, very reluctantly is implicitly acknowledging that, or at least near to that, state of affairs in Iraq. But in dealing with that situation, he also has to confront the problem that he no longer has the political support domestically here in the United States for his apparently failed strategy. And he is not a politician who is known to say, look, boy, I screwed up badly here. This is how we move on. He wants to suggest that the policy is moving forward and that there is something of a new plan. But I would argue that an inability on his part to actually acknowledge the seriousness and the true nature of the mistakes that have been made really very strongly reduces the chances that this alleged new plan will actually bear fruit in Iraq. I would agree with you that most of the country has rejected the president's strategy so far. But most of the country isn't privy to the kind of intelligence that Bush is. So how can you be so sure he's wrong? Well, I would, for sake of brevity, suggest two points as to why I think we can have some confidence that President Bush is wrong. Um, number one, the intelligence that President Bush has used, obviously initially to go to war with Iraq, and since then in various ways and guises, has been proven to be uh, faulty at best and arguably intentionally spun in a favorable direction for the president's case at worst. And so we know that the president's intelligence is debatable, to put it politely. Furthermore, if you look at the situation today, or rather the situation of only a couple of weeks ago, when the surge, the push for new troops, more troops in Iraq, was really, really coming to the fore, those on the ground in Iraq, running the president's military campaign, General Casey in Baghdad and General Abizaid more generally in the Middle East, they were arguing against any increase in troop levels, both on security grounds and on political grounds as well. President Bush has always maintained that he would follow the direction of his military commanders on the ground. What they needed, they would get. What they didn't need, he wouldn't send them. That obviously has become inconvenient for the president, and General Abizaid and General Casey are no longer calling the shots over there. So I think we have, both in terms of President Bush's history in interpreting intelligence and the intelligence that we've until very recently been getting from the people who are literally in the line of fire in Iraq, we have every reason to believe that President Bush is again wrong on this question. But what if this troop surge gives the Iraqi government exactly the room to breathe that it needs to create and train its own forces? Well, your question, which is a good one, presumes two things. 
one, that the troop surge will bring the benefits that are going to be alleged to come with it. That is, that it will successfully dampen down the violence in and around Baghdad. And secondly, it presumes that the Iraqi government is capable of training in any kind of reasonable time period its own army, its own forces, to do a lot of the work that the Americans and the British have largely taken upon themselves to this point. I would suggest very strongly that, at best, there may be a short-term dampening down of violence. I suspect that violence won't go down. What we will see more likely is that the escalation will plateau and that will only be the case until those extra troops are withdrawn. But while they are there, the Iraqi government has shown a complete inability over the last couple of years to make any serious and significant meaningful progress on training its own troops. That, I think, reflects its incompetence. It reflects the corruption that's within the Iraqi government. It's systemic and endemic, particularly in the um, security forces and in the interior ministry. And it also reflects the fact that the Iraqi army, the Iraqi military broadly defined, is both divided along sectarian lines and is also rife with sympathies for respective militias, etc. And so I'm not even sure if we had an adequately trained, in a technical sense, Iraqi military, that we would feel confident that that group, given the politics of the country, could actually do the job that we would like them to do. What about the other pillar of this plan, and that is the New Deal-type projects that are expected to breed support for the U.S. among Iraqis? Well, I think, you know, this is an interesting and to this point largely underappreciated or under-discussed aspect of the president's plan. I find it really quite striking that the president is employing what I would describe as, you know, FDR-style New Deal economic policies for Iraq. I mean, this is an American president who's supposedly a conservative and, well, perhaps some would say he hasn't been a very conservative economic president, and therefore we shouldn't expect more from him overseas. But we are saying to the Iraqi government, here's a pile of money, prop up failed state-run, government-run companies and industries where people show up for work. There's no work to be done. They show up and they get a paycheck and they go home, pave roads, dig ditches, fill them in again, all this make-work stuff that is not going to make any difference at all in terms of really developing an Iraqi economy. And we have the incredibly recent and tangible and expensive experience of the last few years. In the first year or so after the toppling of Saddam Hussein, the American taxpayer sent $30 billion to Iraq for economic reconstruction, just this kind of thing that's again being proposed. It made no difference. There's no reason to expect that this new money will make any more difference. So then what, according to you, is the best way to pacify the insurgency? Well, I would suggest that first and foremost, it's unlikely that the insurgency can be pacified in the short term. The insurgency itself, however, is of course in opposition to the American and British occupation as it is viewed of Iraq. And therefore, putting all other considerations aside, the sooner that the Western powers remove themselves militarily from Iraq, the sooner the insurgency no longer has an excuse to commit its attacks and will obviously have less targets to attack. 
Now, that, of course, leaves out a large question, which is, well, is the insurgency, or should I say, is the violence in Iraq exclusively about killing Americans and killing British soldiers, etc., and repelling the occupier? Well, of course, it's not. It is one aspect of the problem there. The other problem, the historical problem, the long-term problem, is the sectarian one. And the Shia, Sunni, Kurdish divisions, hatreds, etc., are not going to go away, even if the insurgency no longer had a reason to exist. So naturally, we can focus first and foremost on the insurgency, because that's something that we have, for lack of a better phrase, some control over. But we shouldn't assume that even if we do the right things in that regard, that Iraq will suddenly become a peaceful country, because it won't. Actually, the sectarian violence that's really most concerning, I think, for most people, leaving Iraq now to handle its own security would leave the country in collapse, don't you think? Well, this is the dilemma that faces President Bush and his advisors, to be fair. There are no good options politically or militarily regarding Iraq. The president has before him, well, hopefully has before him, an array of choices, all of them with more downsides than upsides. And it's a question of what, in net terms, is the least worst alternative. I suspect very strongly that the situation in Iraq will get worse before it gets better, whether or not the United States and the British military stay there. I think it has a better chance of getting better sooner if the Western powers are not on the ground. Now, the question of timing is a very complicated one. The question of the nature of the withdrawal, how soon, how many, these are very, very complex and difficult questions, not only to answer, but of course for anyone to sort of soundbite. But there is no way that a straightforward solution can be found. The problem is that we are not, to state the obvious, in the summer of 2003. We're in the winter of 2007, which means that almost everything that could go wrong has already gone wrong. Almost every mistake that could have been made in terms of planning and execution and administration has been made. And so there is no way of going back and trying to make the best of what was always going to be a bad situation. Instead, we're facing an almost unfathomable dilemma of which way do we move, because each direction poses its own risks, or not poses, guarantees its own problems and negative consequences. I wish there was a short, succinct, positive answer, but I simply don't think it exists. Okay, I'm going to ask you to go out on a limb here. Walk the podcast listeners through what happens in Iraq after a full pullout of U.S. troops. Well, I assume that you're referring to a, a very quick one and a one in the near term. Under that scenario, I think what would happen is that this Iraqi government would be seriously threatened. I mean, its survival would be threatened and that the sectarian violence or the civil war would come out into the open completely. I mean, it's, it's largely there anyway. And, you know, Western forces are basically papering over the cracks right now. So I think you would probably get a full-scale civil war, the result of which we can't be sure of, but most likely the Sunni minority would lose and lose quite badly. They simply don't have the numbers. And the Shia are backed by the Iranian government. Now, 
a listener might think quite understandably, well, that's obviously bad and therefore we can't allow that to happen because you're going to have more Iraqis killed, you're going to have more refugees, the economy is going to be in greater difficulty than it is now. What I would suggest to your listeners is that, yes, all of those things will happen, but sadly, regrettably, painfully, all of those things are happening today and have been happening increasingly over the last four years. And so there is no way, I don't believe, there's no way around the situation getting worse, at least in the short to medium term. The bottom line is that if Iraq is going to become a functioning democracy, if it is going to have any kind of decent economy, if there is going to be a middle class, if it is a place where Iraqis want to return to, not simply flee from, that is going to have to be sorted out by the Iraqis themselves. They're going to have to decide, are we one country? Can we put our historical divisions behind us? Or are we three countries? Are we a series of provinces and regions that can agree to, to somehow coexist semi-peacefully? We don't know the answer to those questions, but I don't see how the consequences of our leaving are going to be that different from the consequences of our staying, with the one important exception that, of course, if American troops on the ground in Iraq, then American soldiers will no longer be killed in Iraq. What about the common argument that 20,000 troops now is less costly to the United States than a Shia-controlled Iraq, possibly in collusion with Iran, in the future? Well, I would give two responses to that. The first one is that in terms of the troops themselves, there is no guarantee. In fact, I would argue if there is anything approaching a guarantee, it's in the other direction. There's no guarantee that those troops will make the difference. At best, they'll make a marginal difference that will be short-term. They're going to, in effect, be a military band-aid that will buy the administration perhaps several more months of more of the same in Iraq. Secondly, the fear that a Shia-led or Shia-dominated government, quite radical perhaps in nature, will take power in Iraq, that it will be backed by the Iranian government, clearly a, you know, a fundamentalist government with nothing but you know, unfavorable designs on the United States. That is something that we would be very concerned about if it wasn't already the case. We have in Iraq a prime minister whose political support is based upon the whims of Muqtada al-Sada, who is one of the more radical uh, Shiite clergymen who actually controls the balance of power in the Iraqi parliament. His militias are notorious for their killings, the terror and fear that they sow, and all of this is being watched with a very, very wry and large smile from Tehran, where the Iranian government acts increasingly as a puppeteer in terms of what's happening on the ground in Iraq. The Iranians for a long time backed political players and religious players in Iraq who were sympathetic to them, who are now playing increasingly large roles. So we unfortunately can't worry about, there's no point in worrying, it's redundant to worry about what might happen in terms of the Iranian connection or the Shia religious takeover of power because 
an obvious consequence of our invasion and our removal of Saddam Hussein and the institution of a free vote is that the Shia would win, which they did, and that the more religious elements of that religion would dominate politically, which they have done because they were the better organized, they were the better financed, and they were the better armed. And so we again come back to the unfortunate reality that Iraq is so far from what we would hope and what we would like that we have to consider, I think, whether any increase in our involvement is likely to produce anything but further trouble in terms of both cost and lives lost. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.